0: As hard as it is, try and connect with a therapist. And remember, if you don't like them, try somebody else. There absolutely is a therapist out there and there's a style of therapy that will help. Take a girl and a guy and they fall madly in love and form a family. Sprinkle in some counseling degrees and a doctorate, a dream of transforming relationships as we know it. And 20 years later, we give you power couple Dr. Ray and Jean Kedkodian. And this is Couple Synergy.
1: welcome back to another episode of couple synergy with dr ray and jean hi i'm dr ray
2: and i'm jean and this is our podcast about love marriage and relationships.
1: please check us out online at couplesynergy.com or on facebook and instagram at couple synergy and please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review or send us any suggestions on topics you'd like to hear more about and now on to couple synergy an in-depth look at love marriage and relationships where we bring you our experience helping thousands of couples Transformed their relationships for over 20 years.
2: You know, everyone says you should work on your relationship, but nobody teaches us how. So we've created this podcast to teach people what they can do to create the relationship they've always dreamed of
1: with the partner they fell in love with. On today's episode, we welcome Joelle Ribot Melitis. She is a psychotherapist, military psychology, and PTSD expert. She specializes in PTSD, trauma, relationship issues, addictions, and life transitions. Thank you so much for being on our show, Joelle.
0: Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to do this and be here and talk to you both.
1: So we're really interested in in the work that you do and specifically with first responders and military couples. And, you know, before we get into that, you know, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and, you know, kind of how you got into the field?
0: Yeah, so um, I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist and my background and then my dissertation later on was working with broad spectrum eating disorders, trauma and then PTSD, um, was hired by TED to do a TED-Ed animation um, on PTSD. And so that's really where, where I started um, work in the field and fell into working with military and law, law enforcement, first responders, ER nurses. It really, it, it wasn't what I went to, to school to do. Um, I'm a ballerina by training. I did that for 22 years and studied eating disorders. So you can draw the dots, right? Like, <laughs> you know. um, And then when went into working with trauma, I think just because it was my own background and fell into working with military and, and, then all of a sudden, um, I kind of grew up in a, in a military-esque or ish home. Uh, my dad did, did stuff in the sixties, but was not in a uniform and deployed. Um, but I had family members who were, who were in Vietnam, Korea, World War II. And, um, believe it or not, well, you know, my, my grandfather had my father really late in life. And so, um, he was a, a World War I tanker um, oh. yeah, who lied about his age. And it, that's a whole nother story. But so I had this background and it was comfortable to me. And then once I started working with military, all of a sudden it was like, oh, I, I kind of get my I kind of get my dad. I kind of get this this experience. And then they started talking. So, you know, my dad and, and my my family members who were military and, and had been in, in some of the, the, these big wars started to just have conversations with me. Um, so I, I was doing this all be, before military psychology really was a thing that, that people were studying. And so it was, I was learning as much as I could, as fast as I could to try and then work with, um, you know, the, the, to my, with, work with my clients. And then later we, um, the clinic became a provider for the VA, a pri- provider for TRICARE, TRIWEST, which is insurance based um, programs. And so, uh, and, and then we branched out and started working with law enforcement and first responders. So that's my story. And I'm in sa- the San Francisco Bay Area in California.
2: Great. How would you, uh, what would be a good working definition for the word trauma? It's really thrown around an awful lot in our culture these days. How would you define that?
0: Yeah, and it is a buzzword for sure. Um, you know, for me personally, I think trauma is in the eyes of the beholder. And so what I see as trauma, it may not affect me personally, um, but I have a client or people will will talk about something that's very traumatic for them. And, and it holds value to them. It's something that that they have experienced firsthand or witnessed. Um, it could be something that they're there, it's secondary trauma. They're hearing horrific stories or right now watching the, you know, the news. Um, and so it's affecting them, I want to say holistically, mind, body, and spirit, right? It it impacts the way that they feel and think about things. It impacts how their body's responding, whether they're sleeping, eating, um, people report, having a lot of stress-related symptoms, um, they feel nauseous, their hands are sweaty, things like that. And, and then that can be something that, that people hold on to psychically or spiritually, right? And, and that can put a wedge in their own you know, spirituality and faith. So for me, I see trauma as this really invasive experience that people have lived through. Um, and then they're, that that's what they're wanting to talk about and, and how it
2: impacts them. It's interesting what you were saying, because it, it almost wasn't the experience. It was the perception. So two people could experience the same event and one person gets a, a PTSD type of response to it, but the other person might not.
1: Yeah, I think we need to make a distinction between trauma and PTSD, right? Mm Post-traumatic stress disorder. And so I don't know if you could talk a little bit about that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And so we have different ways that we categorize trauma and traumatic stress. And so post-traumatic stress can be similar to post-traumatic stress disorder. That D disorder is that diagnostic criteria that we use, right? When people come in, it has to be meet a certain amount of criteria, four weeks or more being present, it doesn't always show up right away. Sometimes it can show up years later. And for me, I look at it as, okay, D, when it affects your daily life and living, right? When, when it becomes a, to a point where it's, it's hindering one's ability to function. Post-traumatic stress is something that happens after somebody experiences trauma. And so It can look similarly, Um, however, it's not impacting their daily functioning to a point where they're saying, I'm not functioning well, like I'm not living well, I can't get out of bed, I can't do all of the things I used to do. So, you know, I think for me, those are big distinctions, we have a lot of military and first responders Doctors, right, who say, I have post traumatic stress, which makes perfect sense. They witness something or they're experiencing something traumatic. They have a stress and trauma related response to it, and yet they still function. They go to work every day. It doesn't necessarily impact them and it may never will. Then we have other people who experience something, who, who could experience something equally horrific or traumatic and it impacts them tremendously and it impacts their daily life and living functionality. So I guess I look at it that, that way.
2: Mm-hmm. Have you noticed any type of characteristics or, uh, any thing that a person might have in them that would help them have more resilience in witnessing things that are traumatic? It's such a great question
0: as researchers, we don't know a whole lot. We, the field of psychology, um, we know that people who have um, early childhood traumatic experiences, people who have um, early childhood wounding or attachment issues, they may have a narcissistic parent or they've had a lot of emotional abuse. Um, there tends to be a precursor, right, for PTSD. It doesn't mean that somebody will get will will have an issue with PTSD. Um, but there's definitely some kind of correlation, not causation. But beyond that, we don't have a lot of information of why two people, like you said, perception, can, can live through the same thing and one develops PTSD and the other doesn't. And so what we know about resilience is that people who have good mindfulness, joy, um, joyful, you know, gratitude practices. People who are doing as much for their mental wellness as they are for their physical wellness, and they're developing resiliency skills before trauma, tend to move through trauma quicker. Um, it doesn't mean that they don't end up having PTSD. They they tend to be better equipped to move through um, the PTSD experience um, with with a little bit more ease, I guess, is the best
2: way to say it. That's kind of interesting. I was thinking back to, you know, being in basic training and you have long periods of time where you can't react to things. And to me as now a meditator, I can see what it was doing to my brain back then of having to self-soothe and, you know, deal with emotions without responding or reacting in any way and I would say that was probably something that builds some of that resilience. But I wonder if the military is still doing so much of that in their trainings today.
0: Yeah, I can speak to that j- just a little bit. You know, not being in um, working, you know, as a military employee, um, they, you know, there definitely is a lot of resiliency training. There, there's mindfulness training. I think that. The military is looking at developing resiliency skills and stress management skills um, from basic training all the way through advanced officer courses um, to try and help alleviate some of uh, I, th- I think some of what you're talking about right where mm-hmm. You're being, you're being taught a certain way, indoctrinated a certain way, there's a certain way to respond. And so what do you do when you have someone who is emotional by nature and, and they don't have an outlet? So I think they're looking at it more um, with military suicide and veteran suicide on the rise again. Um, and right now it, it's higher than it, it has been in a long time again. I think we're looking at ways that we can combat trauma and start implementing resiliency training, um, it's not foolproof.
1: Yeah. Now, you know, speaking of your basic training and, you know, kind of how the military and law enforcement has kind of evolved over the years, have have you seen like an evolution in PTSD, you know, amongst military folk or also amongst uh, law enforcement?
0: Yeah, I think in my experience, what I'm noticing is more people are willing to talk about it. Mm. And when we can start to really say, um, and, and I teach resiliency training to military and law enforcement. And so part of what I talk about is why wouldn't you have a traumatic experience you live through this traumatic thing of course you're going to emotionally physically and maybe again even psychically or spiritually respond right to this event um that that makes perfect sense right our bodies are designed to respond to trauma that fight flight freeze that's different than um the disordered part, which I think is what the fear and the stigma is about. And so some of it is is just psychoeducation. Let's, let's break this apart and explain, here's what's happening in your body when it's under stress and when it, it's experiencing trauma. And of course, you're going to have this response, right? And then here's some techniques to start implementing resiliency and, and stress management to see if we can reduce the response to avoid that you know, de-disordered piece. So I think some of it is is—is there's more willingness to talk about it. There's definitely um, more willingness to look at officer wellness, military wellness, and implement resiliency and training strategies to, to combat some of this. Um, and I think it's also people who have been in military roles and law enforcement, first responder roles now, for 15 to 20 years, are looking at what their friends to the right and left of them are experiencing: some retiring and doing well, some retiring and um, have having committed suicide, not right and not thriving. Um, and then the young, the younger generation of people that are starting to get into the field and looking at these things and saying, "How how can we help?" And we're willing to finally talk about it. So I think that there, there's movement on, on both ends, um, but it's slow.
2: You, you've mentioned spirituality several times. Yeah. And I had an interesting thought, you know, when, when I was a kid, everyone belonged to some form of church, you know, whatever religious practices they did. And today that's much less as a culture. We don't identify with that so much. Does a person's spiritual beliefs or faith have anything to do with that resilience?
0: If it, if it matters to the person. And mm-hmm. so I think that's the key is if somebody is saying, you know, I had religious connection, or I had spiritual connection before the trauma happened, then it absolutely becomes a necessary resourcing component where we want to try and build that resiliency back up using faith and spirituality because it was so much a part of who that person was. There are other people that come in and say, that's not who I am at all, in which case that's not necessarily going to help them. Mm -hmm. Um, Some people find a sense of of faith and and spirituality after trauma and other people lose it. And, And so I think it's an individualized question. I think for me, looking at, at the person as a whole being, um, it's important for us to recognize that we, we have this other component, whatever that looks like for, for an individual, right? And, and there's a spectrum of spirituality and religion that, that people can identify with. So even when people say, I don't have, um, I'm not faith-based, I don't have a religion and I wouldn't define myself as spiritual, but I love to meditate. For me, there's that piece we can cultivate, which I think counts, right? Mm-hmm. Like, oh, okay, cool. We can bring that in and develop that that component that's more than just emotional or cognitive. It's mm-hmm. it's this other layer.
1: Uh, we did it, an episode with a couple friends of ours who are married, and they're both in law enforcement. And they talked about just you know being able to understand each other's you know daily life and daily experiences. Uh, but most often you have couples where one person's a law enforcement officer and you have another person who is in the military, but the other person is not. And okay. so I'm just wondering how, in your experience, trauma, how's trauma affected marriages and relationships, you know, where one person is experiencing trauma and the other person isn't?
0: Yeah, <laughs> I think it's, it sounds like it's such a simple question and it's so complicated, right? Because, you know, we know being in this industry um, and and you working with couples, right? As well, that if you have a good foundation, um, you have ways to support each other. And when some, when somebody's experiencing trauma, the other spouse can rally, right? And so some of it is that setup or precursor of what's the relationship like? before the trauma. I think what happens with law enforcement and, and military is it becomes dinner table conversation. And so what we see is a lot of, a lot of partners, spouses, um, and then children are really accustomed to hearing about that, that parent or that partner's, right? Um, th- that spouse's experience on a, on, a, on a day-to-day level. And so there's a lot of trauma information there's a lot of horrific details that are normalized because that's part of being in a law enforcement or military culture, right? And we we talk about these things and and we talk about them in front of our children. And so, um, you know, there are positives and negatives about that. A lot of people have different opinions about that. My point only is, sometimes we aren't mapping how traumatic it is for our partner and we're not mapping how traumatic it is for, for us or for me, right. Being the non-military partner um, to go through that and, and hear it all. Um, and so it, it's, I think, I think that sometimes that becomes a wedge. I think a lot of times marriages, especially with, with people who are marrying younger and their their person is just starting their law enforcement or military career. You know, I I hear a lot five years, eight years into relationships, well, I didn't sign up for this. That's always an interesting response for me because, well, of course it's true that yes, you knew this person was going to do this field or was in this field. Um, And so, In some ways, yes, you signed up for it. I don't think that's what they mean. I think what they're really saying is, I didn't know it was going to be this hard. I didn't know that I would have to watch my partner suffer as much as they do. Um, For some people, it results with, you know, shutting down anger, you know, drug and alcohol addiction and fidelity porn. There's all different ways that someone who is not managing trauma well will manifest, Right, um, a lot of times it's anger, and so I think the other person on the other side is is struggling with it's too much for me, and I also don't know how to deal with providing support. I think I answered your question. Mm-hmm. Yeah, ab-
1: absolutely. Yeah, I, it reminds me of a uh, of a story of a, a I think it was a client, or I I heard it in a training or something, but there was a police officer who, on his first. Uh, night on the job had come across a a horrific accident, you know, and there was was a family that was killed in this accident and then having to come home and his wife asking him how was work, Yeah, you know, and so I imagine there's two extremes there, you know, there's the extreme of, you know, the person venting and just kind of talking to their partner, letting everything out, even the details. And then the other extreme of keeping it all in because they don't want to burden, you know, their partner with all of those details. Yeah. And, you know, on the other side, you have law enforcement where, you know, the, 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 uh, the, stereotype or the culture, the old culture was just, you know, suck it up and keep it in and, you know, don't really express that. And so there's this, this internal struggle that most of them have to go through here. And, you know, you, you mentioned alcoholism and, suicide. I mean, all of those statistics are very high, you know, in those fields.
0: Yeah. I And I don't think we do a good, we being society therapists, you know, educators, I don't think we do a good job of giving partners and spouses tools in the beginning of the relationship to say, hey, here's the job that that the person you love the most in this world is going to do. And All of the things that comes with that. So let's work on some resiliency techniques for you or ways that you can be supportive and then also set healthy boundaries. Right. We we just we forget about that piece, you know, and so by the time people are coming into therapy, they're really struggling,
1: Mm. you know, kind of need their own orientation. Right.
0: Right. <laughs> you know, and, and I laugh, too, because I just think about my own life and it's like I, I do this for a living. And, and it's one thing to to do this professionally. And it's another thing to be involved with somebody who does that job for a living. And um, and, you know, I think I'm pretty well trained and there are moments where I'm looking at my hands and I and, you know it's like I don't actually I don't know what I'm supposed to do here. I can't ask questions because I'm not going to be given any information. So, you know, beyond saying, what can I do for you? How can I support you? What do you need right now? What's my role here? Do you just need to vent? Do you need, you know, to go out and take a walk? And so it really is arming, I think, partners and spouses with tools to be able to set some healthy boundaries for themselves and then also staying out of sort of the blast radius, right?
2: we interviewed someone that was in the Pentagon during nine 11 Mm -hmm. and he was really a part of it all the way through helping people get out. And, and he stayed there at that position for a couple more years after that. And he said, you know, I'm working with people and we all went through this together. And so it was sort of a normal way of being for them. And then he left the position and he moved to the Chicagoland area and then he started having symptoms of post-traumatic stress. And, you know, you talked a little bit about sometimes it doesn't show up right away. What are some other things that why wouldn't it show up? And, and so people know that's really a normal experience. It's not instantaneous for everyone
0: yeah and and it's uh, it's actually more often the case than not in the beginning people are doing a lot of they're talking the families are rallying around people there's a lot of support and then over time people feel like they start to stabilize or normalize and that support doesn't just disappear but it it goes back to what it used to be like um and then something like changing jobs, locations, re-traumatize, re-traumatization, other triggers, right? All of a sudden it's back again. So it's more more normal and more common to, be, um, to, to come back to these symptoms later on in life than it is when it's happening in the moment, um, especially with career law enforcement and military. And so, um, you know... Part of it is like, like you said, you know, I have this sense of, of um, I have a team, right? With, with military and law enforcement, right? I have this team, I have a partner, I have a team, we have a shared experience, we have shared culture, we have a shared language um, and, and they get me, I get them. We don't have to talk about it. And then all of a sudden now I'm in a completely different either field area, Or phase of life, and I don't have that anymore. And now I'm alone, right? And so sometimes that's the trigger for all of a sudden the the PTSD symptoms and then PTSD to really start to present, you know.
2: As a, a support person, how would you know if someone is having signs of really being in a position where they may be at risk for suicide?
0: Yeah, um, suicide is one of those things that it is um, more often than not a very quick, spontaneous and impulsive decision. Um, The myth is if we talk about it, we're actually telling people that it's okay to do it, which is not the case at all. The more we talk about it, the more education we have around it, um, the better people are equipped to manage their their suicidal ideation. Um, So, recognizing signs and symptoms is really important talking to people listening to what they're saying do they feel hopeless helpless they report that they have no motivation no they've lost joy they have no meaning so we're listening for buzzwords and we're listening to you know people will say oh it's exaggerated they're exaggerating and and what we're listening for is the velocity and the intensity of how they're reporting it um do they have a plan are they talking about a plan do they have access to weapons um are they giving away possessions are they talking more and more about when i'm gone um sometimes people will say you know i just wish i didn't wake up i just wish i, I wasn't here and so trying to figure out as this as a, a non-mental health right or you know non-clinically trained person to say hey would it be helpful to talk with somebody? Let's find, you know, how can I help you? Let's find somebody great. Do you want me to go with you? Um, and, and looking at resources and it really is, is talking, it's starting to talk about it. Um, it's very difficult. I, I have a lot of people that will, um, that I, that I talk to or when I do trainings that will come up to me afterward and they'll say, I did everything. I did all the things, Mm -hmm. you know, um, and, and my loved ones still, you know, they still committed suicide. Mm-hmm. And I think that the hardest part to understand and to rationalize is it's so impulsive. Um, is there, you know, more isolation? Are they, you know, not doing the things they used to love? Are they pulling away from family and friends? They don't return texts and phone calls. Um, you know, are they drinking or using substances more, um, you know do they report they're not sleeping? Um, sleep is a huge precursor. So when people are saying, I'm sleeping 20 hours or I'm not sleeping at all, um, it's that's a good indication. And, and we're talking about things that are are not just just one one-time events, but you're starting to you know see a trend in your loved one. Um, are they not eating? Th- things like that?
1: And I, I would probably say also, Expect the resistance. If yes. you are trying to reach out, you're trying to you know get them help or trying to get them to talk, that you are going to be met with resistance, and that's probably even more difficult to deal with.
0: Yeah, it's such it's such a good point, you know. And so how, yeah how how can we gently meet them in a, in a place where really they you know a lot of times people will say I don't want help, right and exactly. I think the other myth is that, um, that it's, it's a very selfish act and, and without kind of attacking that necessarily looking at it from most of the time, people will say, um, I would be better off or my family would be better off if I wasn't here, everybody, and they use, um, hyperbolic terms, everybody, the world, mm-hmm. right? You would be better off if I, if I wasn't here, if I just disappeared, if I just went away. And so that, that's that resistance you're talking about too, right? Is how do you try and convince somebody that no, that's not the case when they actually believe that their pain and suffering um, is so great that it is impacting and affecting the world around them right, in a very negative, dark way.
2: What would you say to someone who uh, lost a child or a partner to suicide um, and they feel that they could have or should have done something different, kind of that survivor's guilt? What would you say to them?
0: Yeah, the shoulda, woulda, coulda is not helpful. Um, and also the, the platitudes, I'm sorry, um, that's so horrible. Um, the toxic positivity, uh, those things are not helpful. Mm -hmm. Um, And it, 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 it it really comes down to when somebody is sitting with me and and that's their experience of saying I, and, and sometimes owning it, even as a therapist, you know, we'll just make up Susie, you know, Susie, I, I don't know what to say right now and not, but we don't want to negate what we just said right you know i don't know what to say right now and i'm here with you mm-hmm. you know i want to be here with you and let's let's talk about what you need right and please you know tell me how i can best support you in this moment right now um be, because the things that we're trained i think as, as a culture to say are really not helpful um, so some of it is, is starting there very gently and meeting the person where they're at and then really teaching, you know, CBT, DBT um, type skills based techniques to do the thought stopping when I should have, I could have, if only if I, you know, had only done if I had just made, of um, okay, stop right. Take a breath. That's that mindfulness meditation piece you were talking about in the beginning gene, right. Of, okay, stop, take a breath. And, um, how is this helpful for you right now? Right. So instead of shame, using shame as a way to deflect the shoulda, woulda, coulda leaning into, into the shame, right. How, how is this helpful? I hear you, you feel, really guilty and you feel really ashamed does that resonate am i understanding you correctly right and and so just very gingerly working with that and having trauma-informed training if you're a therapist listening trauma-informed training so we're not re-traumatizing our clients
2: it's amazing how much we need other people yeah and when we lock this stuff up in ourselves That's where it doesn't go so well. And to have other people that are just able to listen and not kind of interject their own stuff into whatever the person's narrative is, and just to be there with them is the most helpful thing we can possibly do.
1: Yeah, I like the the phrase toxic positivity that you brought up Mm -hmm. there, because it just makes me think of all those Facebook posts that, you know, comments that people say, you know, that because they feel you know obligatory mm-hmm. you know to respond in a certain way and you know, just saying i i don't i don't have any words but but i am here for you that is and, and in person not just <laughs> not through text or anything like that you know but uh, you know i'm just thinking about your cousin and mm-hmm. your cousin's son and you know just that point that you're talking about earlier that it it does come in waves Right, it comes, you know, out over time, and it can reemerge, and and that's that's some reassurance there, right?
0: And and this idea of we're supposed supposed to right, um, it, with air quotes, um, do this a certain way, experience grief a certain way, experience trauma a certain way, um, experience loss a certain uh, right. Um, getting out of that habit and it's everybody's going to go through this process uniquely and so I find myself w- with with my even my friends and and people that that I know personally um, saying instead of saying I'm sorry saying you know I I'm here for you mm. right um, I'm sending you you know love and and here's my number. Feel free to reach out to me at any time. I find myself moving in that direction instead of the, the trained responses. Oh, I'm so sorry for your loss.
2: Hmm. You know, another trained response that I think is pretty re-traumatizing is when you meet someone that served and you say, thank you for your service.
0: Right.
2: And the person's like, you know, and I think that's a really common thing that people who haven't served don't understand You know, and regardless of someone's experience in the military, there's always you're still here, regardless of anything else that you had to go through. And and people have a hard time feeling good about their service.
0: Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting about that because it started that's a post 9-11 thing that started, what, 22 years ago in response to the negative impact from Vietnam soldiers returning home and Mm -hmm. how and how the country dealt with that. Right. So they said, OK, well, we'll just start, you know, thanking people for their service. And then in in those early post 9-11 years, the response was, well, thank you for your support. So we were also telling our military members, people are going to thank you for your service. And then you you say thank you for your support and you're right now now what we know about it is is that's that's not beneficial or helpful yeah. at all it is absolutely re-traumatizing um, and and so you know again i think when we're in public and people want they want to make some kind of connection and show support and yet you know not realizing that yes yeah, sometimes words from a stranger can be re-traumatizing, can be triggering. And we don't know if somebody, what what their experience is. Maybe they had a a fantastic time in their fourth generation and this is their entire life and that that's a lot of pride. And for somebody, you know, maybe they are the only surviving team member that came home Mm -hmm. and um, there's a a lot going on for them. And that that in and of itself is re-traumatizing.
1: Well, Joel, can you tell uh, uh, our listeners where would they find out more information about you know what you do and you know get in contact with you?
0: Oh, thanks. Um, yeah, and I I love emails and and you know people can reach out to us and and we always respond, especially with resources um, from all over the country. There's some really great resources that are available. Um, it's my name, Joel Rabo Malitus. I know you will spell it out for. <laughs> in the title, but um, uh, so it's my name.com. Um, that's the website. So joelrabomelitas.com. My email is joel at joelrabomelitas.com, um, And you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn. And, and like I said, we we put up a lot of um, material that's psychoeducation that talks about trauma and, and coping mechanisms, and then providing amazing resources like your practice and what you're doing. And sharing that um, with as many folks as we can.
2: Wonderful. And if somebody was struggling, what would you say to them right now?
0: As hard as it is, try and connect with a therapist. And remember, if you don't like them, try somebody else. There are so many amazing therapists out there and there is one for you, right? It it may not be me. I'm not for everybody, Um, but there absolutely is, is a therapist out there and there's a style of therapy that will help. Um, and call the hotlines, and and if that's too scary, there's there's platforms now that you can chat with a therapist and get help. So lot lots of different ways to to at least try and make a connection if if that's something that's doable.
1: Fantastic, um, and we're definitely going to put all your connecting info and the show notes and everything and want to thank you to all so much for being on our podcast today
0: thank you so much for having me it was a pleasure
1: i want to thank all of you for joining us and today on couple synergy our passion is in helping couples and people have happy and healthy relationships and this podcast gives us a fun way of bringing our knowledge and expertise to you our listeners for all of you listening please let us know how much you enjoyed our show if you have any questions comments or topic suggestions Please email us at contact at couplesynergy.com. For more information about Couple Synergy and our programs such as Relationship 101, our home study course, the Couples Weekend Intensive, and our premier coaching program called Couple to Couple, look us up online at couplesynergy.com.
2: And if you know someone who could benefit from this episode, please download it and share it. And thank you for
1: listening. Until next time, synergize your life and synergize your love.